Hello, I'm Constantine Nasser, and it is my pleasure and honor to explore the second collaboration of two of my very favorite artists, bar none, Rod Serling, who wrote both segments of this fourth episode of Night Gallery, and Steven Spielberg, who directed its first segment, Make Me Laugh. I say collaboration in the loosest sense of the word because both men never actually worked together on the episode, and collaboration was not exactly the experience that Serling was granted with any of the directors who interpreted his work on this show, quite simply because he regrettably did not have the control he no doubt missed, and also because the show's producer, Jack Laird, did not afford Serling the respect he deserved. Respect would have been an opportunity to come to the set of the show that bore his name beyond filming these requisite introductions. Sadly, as we will discover, Serling was not invited to Spielberg's set, and further still, it was most likely because Spielberg did not have the authority to override Lair's dictates. We're now actually in the Night Gallery itself, erected on Stage 12 at Universal Studios. These introductions were all filmed in November 1970, after production of the series had wrapped. Hanging on both sides of the impeccably dressed, heavily tanned, and sadly aged Serling are two of the more memorable paintings created by artist Tom Wright. Later on this track, you'll hear from Taylor White, who recently published the eye-dropping, complete collection of Wright's paintings called The Art of Darkness, which any self-respecting fan should own. It's amazing that Wright would start his paintings well in advance of completed scripts, and certainly before casting. These images were to evoke feelings and responses from the viewer, humanistic responses, much like Serling's own writing. I always felt that this was the whole point of the artwork, and it is one of the things that helps positively distinguish this series from The Twilight Zone. Yes, we'll have to touch on those unfair and unnecessary comparisons, because that was the nature of what NBC wanted, whether explicitly or not. But Wright's paintings were always images that never let Rod Serling or his writing down, and the great man said as much. This opening sequence is visually fresh thanks to Spielberg's clever choice of spending equal or maybe even more time on the audience's reactions to Slater's. I love this guy sleeping on the table. We can feel everyone's disappointment and disinterest in Jackie Slater. A lot of the criticism thrown at Make Me Laugh is directed at the two stars of the episode, Godfrey Cambridge, seen here on stage, a place that he knew so very well as one of the leading comics of the 1960s, and his co-star, Jackie Vernon, also another very popular contemporary stand-up, although Cambridge was a much bigger name and drew a much bigger audience. Cambridge was also a much more experienced actor, which is quite surprising when you consider how much he is often derided for his performance. The strange thing about this episode is that Cambridge is playing the part of a comic that was clearly written for a Jewish comedian, or certainly not a black comic. If you watch any of Cambridge's stand-up work, he's a very funny man who is also fearless with his humor. He's deliberately unfunny here, but what's also interesting is that Cambridge is ad-libbing these bad jokes. Using the episode's shooting script as our primary resource, we discover that the first words that Serling writes for Jackie Slater is the bad chopped liver suit joke. These are also the first words Slater speaks in Serling's short story of the same name, which we believe to have been written sometime after the teleplay, though dates are sketchy at best. In that short story, Slater's birth name is revealed to be Jacob Slatsky, and he is a typical Serling sad sack protagonist in need of the milk of human kindness. Here is how he's described. Quote, Jackie Slater, a balding, baggy-pants fat man who did stand-up monologues in third-rate nightclubs, smelly little places with broken neon signs, and he would stand in front of a cheap and distorting microphone, wheezing out broad burlesque in between arthritic acrobats and over-the-hill, big-thighed dancing girls, playing to bored boozers who had either heard his jokes or didn't want to hear them. 
Jackie Slater, an overweight thief of other people's material, trying to be Jackie Gleason, Sam Levinson, or Joe Miller, trying to be anybody and everybody just to squeeze out laughter from the grim, dark silhouettes sitting at tables beyond the spotlight. He was bad, a coaxer and a cajoler, a classless clown, freakish but not funny, gross, wheedling, desperately cute, a hippopotamus in ruffled panties, waddling around the stage, sweating his life away in one-nighters. I wanted to read that at length because Serling, as always, is very specific and his way with creating characters with a pointed turn of phrase or a clear but clever visual description is unmatched. Now, despite what Cambridge throws at this character, he does not come close to embodying the character Serling wrote. That said, Cambridge was a fairly polished actor and I don't fault him for trying to give Slater that Jewish comic from the Catskills bent, but for some reason, it just doesn't come through. Here's Al Lewis, famous for playing Grandpa Munster on The Munsters as Mishkin. Lewis is a jewel and always gives a performance worth watching, and in my view, he delivers the episode's best performance. Joining him here is Tom Bosley, who made quite an impression in Spielberg's first night gallery outing, Eyes, in which he played the sad but good-natured Sidney Resnick, who sells his precious sight so that Joan Crawford could see. Bosley is wonderful here. His Jules Kettleman is, as Serling writes, in the same league as his client. Bosley was a reliable and versatile actor. A number of actors would return to play in two, three, or even four different episodes across these seasons, but Tom Bosley was the first. Now, pay attention to this line from Mishkin. Unasked, following opinion. You couldn't fill a men's room with free shoe shines. Serling has had his condescending types offer their unasked advice or commentary before. Just think back to a classic scene in Time Enough at Last, when Vaughn Taylor's snooty Mr. Carsville gives Burgess Meredith's gentle Mr. Bemis his unasked reaction to his wife's behavior. There's a lot of similarity between Mishkin and Carsville, and many more of those overbearing, cruel human beings who lack human decency, going all the way back to Everett Sloan's soulless Ramsey in Patterns. Jackie Slater isn't as sympathetic as Bemis, or the other put-upon protagonists we find in Serling's work. In fact, he's quite the opposite. But there are similarities, no patterns, to be found in Serling's work and his characters. They clearly ring of his commitment to themes that are deep-seated, themes reflecting a world that has yet to learn and grow in the decades between these various predicaments that are both natural and unnatural to the human condition. Serling's screenplay calls for this scene to be played with Slater looking at himself in the mirror, studying himself as we study him. Instead, the mirror is us. Spielberg's setup is not just a clever interpretation. It's more thematic, as stand-up comics react to audiences that they have to face directly. And if you think about it, who do they practice their routines on but themselves, looking in mirrors, hoping that person looking back laughs. Now, if you can believe it or not, this episode, directed by Steven Spielberg, was actually forced into reshoots, and this was the scene that caused the problem. In fact, Tom Bosley wasn't the original actor cast in this role. That was the Tony-nominated actor and comedian Eddie Mayhoff, known for his supporting work and features with Bob Hope, Martin and Lewis, and Jack Lemmon in How to Murder Your Wife. For whatever reason, Mayhoff was deemed problematic, and so reshoots were necessary. Quote, Godfrey was not an easy guy to work with, Bosley told authors Scott Skelton and Jim Benson for their seminal book Night Gallery and After Hours Tour. I had known Godfrey years before in New York, but all of a sudden he thought he was something a little more than he actually was. It was unfortunate. I think one of the reasons Eddie Mayoff was replaced was because he and Godfrey couldn't get along. It might have been the same thing with Steven." End quote. Make Me Laugh was originally assigned production number 32355 before numbers were swapped with the Clean Kills segment 
32364. It was most likely filmed in the middle of September 1970. Serling turned in his first draft on September 2nd, but the shooting draft is dated September 10th, with revisions by Jack Laird. However, the scenes with Kettleman were revised further, and those pages are dated November 2nd, nearly two months after that episode was shot. They hated it, said Sid Sheinberg, then head of Universal Television and Spielberg's champion, friend, and mentor. Quote, they called the people who were producing the show and demanded that Spielberg be removed. It was a horrendous circumstance. As a matter of fact, it was the only time in all the years I ran MCA television that the network insisted a guy be replaced. Not only didn't they like the work he was doing, they ordered me never to use him again on anything. It was a very jarring experience, not only for me, but for Steven, end quote. Laird and executive producer Paul Freeman brought in Jano Swark, who had filmed the first episode's Little Black Bag segment, and who would be one of the series' favorite directors to reshoot the two scenes with Bosley as Kettleman. According to Swark, quote, NBC was totally stupid. Someone at NBC was giving Steve hell, and I could never figure out why. I think I reshot one scene. I did it shot by shot, exactly the way he had done it. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't have, but Jack really put it on a friendship basis. I was really caught in the middle. I liked Steve a lot, but I had a lot of loyalty to Jack, end quote. And now here's the episode's co-star, the king of deadpan himself, Jackie Vernon. In a turban and dark face paint, no less. It's a very, very odd casting choice, to say the least, but it is also one that begs further exploration and consideration as to how and why these two men, these two comics, were cast in a very serious and emotionally charged story. I'll offer my conjecture momentarily. But first, let's enjoy some of the visual trademarks of then 23-year-old Steven Spielberg's camera eye, such as this slow-moving dolly shot. Spielberg has not been shy about both his early disdain for television, but also his efforts to bring life to the small screen with his artsy-fartsy tricks. Those tricks may have irritated Russell Meddy, the crusty but revered DP who shot eyes with Spielberg the year before. But here he's working with DP Richard Glauner, who sets up this wonderful dolly that tracks in on a tight image that boxes both men in on opposite corners of the frame, with the bartender positioned in the middle, almost like a referee. The move is driven by storytelling, and it lasts for over a minute, broken up by the interplay by the bartender, before we start going back and forth to the over-the-shoulder shots typical of television. If you watch Eyes and the rest of Spielberg's TV work, especially the feature-length Columbo episode Murder by the Book, you'll quickly realize why Spielberg was not typical of television, even when he tried to restrain himself so as to keep steady employment, but also why everyone who saw his work was impressed and knew it was only a matter of time before he launched into the next phase of his career, which was only months away from his directing this simple slice of episodic television. Let's take a moment to introduce Gene Kearney, who is playing the bartender. Kearney was a successful writer and producer who had established himself at Universal with some of the first ever TV movies like the thriller How I Spent My Summer Vacation and the western A Man Called Gannon. Kearney wasn't an actor, and this episode of Night Gallery is his singular credit, but it was clear that his casting was a premonition, as he would go on to write and direct a number of episodes in seasons two and three, twelve in all, including the highly regarded segment The Painted Mirror. After his early work in documentaries and commercials, Kearney launched his career writing and directing an adaptation of Conrad Aiken's short story, Silent Snow, Secret Snow, in 1966, which he remade for Night Gallery's second season. After the series folded, Kearney went on to write and produce for shows like Switch and Kojak. He also penned the genre cult film about killer bunnies, Night of the Lepus. Like Serling, he died too young, succumbing to cancer in 1979 at age 49. 
Unfortunately, this tight two-shot, which I like quite a bit, doesn't hide any of the problems we find with these two leads, especially Jackie Vernon. Why Vernon is forced to wear makeup to darken his skin is anyone's guess. And as I'm Middle Eastern, I'll admit it does not offend me. No ya offendi. It does not. It's just unnecessary and additionally comical in the way that it's not supposed to be. We'll leave it and the turban at that. But let's talk Jackie Vernon. Vernon was a stand-up comic known for his deadpan humor, who worked those nightclubs and put in the time before he found his overnight success on television through the good graces of Steve Allen, Ed Sullivan, Merv Griffin, and Dean Martin. As much as he became a fixture on television and in clubs throughout the 60s, he was not known as an actor, either by training or experience. However, Jackie Vernon had a singular, emotionless sense of delivery, which we see here. And that magic was utterly charming and absolutely perfect when he did make his acting debut of sorts for producers Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass, who cast him as the voice of Frosty the Snowman in 1969's animated television special for CBS. The team had successfully cast name actors in animated roles, something that is common today but was a novelty that Rankin Bass established and experimented with throughout their career. They nailed it with Jackie Vernon. Vernon would reprise Frosty successfully twice, but was there some ambition on his part to become a full-fledged actor? Others had done it, including his co-star Cambridge, who had numerous credits and vastly different roles under his belt going back two decades, from The Last Angry Man to The Watermelon Man to Cotton Comes to Harlem and its sequel, Come Back Charleston Blue, which he'd film after this episode. Godfrey Cambridge was a legitimate actor. In fact, he was an actor first and foremost, a Tony-nominated actor who earned Best Supporting Dramatic Recognition for his performance in Ossie Davis's play Pearly Victorious in 1962. Cambridge was no slouch, not at all, and I can't stress enough that I am a fan and I'm not suggesting you compare these two men or their talents. And as I said earlier, Slater is so obviously meant to be ethnically Jewish, and yet Cambridge was able to summon up a Yiddish-speaking taxi driver in Sidney Lumet's Bye Bye Braverman, which is a heck of a scene with Cambridge stealing the spotlight from George Siegel, Jack Warden, and Joseph Wiseman. Who knows why he didn't go with the same approach here. One might say this is an issue for director Steven Spielberg, as he was the director. But remember, in 1970, Spielberg was a director for hire, and a TV director at that. One who was almost on the outs with Universal, if it were not for Sid Sheinberg, the Universal boss, and his ardent champion. But we'll get to Mr. Spielberg shortly. I'd like to spend some time on some casting conjecture now. And I say conjecture because there's absolutely no proof of what I'm going to posit and ask you to consider simply because there's no paperwork remaining and everyone we could probably ask is either passed on or passed on discussing. So here's my line of thinking. I read you the description of Slater. Now let me read you the description of Chatterjee from the script, which was rewritten by Jack Laird and numerous others. In fact, not a single page of Serling's script was not revised by someone else. But here it is, quote, a turbaned, iodine-faced little man, end quote. Not much more specific than that. Let's take a read of the more specific as only Serling could describe. Quote, sitting cross-legged on a bar stool, draped in a cape, upturned tasseled bedroom slippers and a turban housing a cracked ruby, was a tiny little man with an iodine-colored face who looked like Sam Jaffe playing Gunga Dean. He was looking out of the corner of his eye toward Jackie, then turned on the bar stool to face him, unfolding his tiny little pipe stream legs as he did so." End quote. He looked like Sam Jaffe, very interesting. The same Sam Jaffe who co-starred in Serling's pen gem Escape Route from the original Night Gallery pilot film. Now, as we know, Serling wrote Escape Route and Eyes as short stories first, 
published in the Seasons to be Wary collection, along with Color Scheme, the story he had hoped would star Sammy Davis Jr. Jaffe was perfect as Old Bloom. Make me laugh, this episode was later adapted and fleshed out into a short story that contained that description, along with the exact description of Jackie Slater. Did Serling specifically describe Chatterjee as Sam Jaffe because that is who he saw in his mind from the beginning and producer Jack Laird opted otherwise? Also, was it possible that Laird, who enjoyed stunt casting, decided to cast Jackie Burnett fresh off a TV splash as Frosty the Snowman as Jackie Slater, who could have delivered the goods in terms of the sad sack New York ethnic protagonist that Serling described? Could the part have been discussed or even offered only for someone to decide or realize that Vernon just couldn't act? Someone saves the day with the brilliant idea of Cambridge and Vernon can play the secondary role because they don't want Sam Jaffe. Sam Jaffe, the actor who Serling would have wanted because he says so in the short story. Maybe Sam Jaffe was busy during the week of filming. Who knows? But Vernon as the alternative was a casting mistake. Serling learned a lesson with Requiem for a Heavyweight when Ed Wynn was cast as Army the Cutman. Wynn was a comic and didn't believe he could pull off the seriousness of the role, especially playing opposite his dramatically intense son, Keenan Wynn, let alone Jack Palance. Serling was beside himself, almost taking his name off the play before it aired live. But one of the many surprises of that film was Ed Wynn's emotionally sincere performance. He had it in him, and everyone helped him pull it off. So much so that director Ralph Nelson wrote a play of the experience called The Man in the Funny Suit. Serling realized not to judge a book by its cover. Wynn would get nominated for an Oscar for The Diary of Anne Frank, and Serling wrote the Twilight episode One for the Angels just for him. Now this was a second scene that had to be reshot by Jeannot Swark, probably in the same day. Cambridge's robe here reminds me of a Pagliacci clown outfit, just a little too gaudy like the character of Slater himself. I do like the consistency of Cambridge's mirror being the camera eye itself. Remember, Jeannot Swark said he was just reshooting Spielberg's camera setups, so this was just another way that Spielberg cleverly brought in his avant-garde approach to the small screen. It's about time we speak of the man whose professional legacy began with Night Gallery and whose Night Gallery association ends here. Steven Spielberg has talked at length about his early days at Universal and what led to the experience directing Joan Crawford in Eyes. That account is often retold and has become legend. What happened on Make Me Laugh is a different story. In fact, I've not come across any commentary directly from Spielberg that discusses this second excursion into the series. What is known is that after Eyes, Spielberg had become disenchanted with studio episodic work. He was eager to work and tired of waiting around no matter how many people were encouraged to watch Amblin, his short film, and take a chance on him. He realized that he was perhaps too young to be considered experienced and too artistically bent to be considered trustworthy, especially for episodic producers who were tight with time and money, especially at Universal. So he took a self-imposed leave of absence to pursue those artistic efforts only to discover, as he did say, quote, I couldn't raise $100 to make a film, so I spent a year writing screenplays and went back to Universal after a year pleading poverty. I said, I'll do Marcus Welby, MD. I'll do Night Gallery. I'll do The Name of the Game. Give me anything. And I began to pay my dues, as they say, and direct episodic television, end quote. Spielberg's episodic work is incredible when you consider he had never directed a feature or a movie star or a TV film or any of the things that Eyes accomplished, especially with Joan Crawford. His television work, one episode at a time, gave Spielberg the chance to direct real actors and focus on character as opposed to the visual language he knew like the back of his hand. And who better to write for character than Rod Serling? It's just too bad that he didn't have full control of the situation. 
When it was determined that these scenes had to be reshot, the blame must have been laid at Spielberg's feet as he was not called back to direct them, even when they brought in the other Eyes alum, Tom Bosley. Speaking with Richard Schickel in 2006, Spielberg reflected on the lessons he learned on Night Gallery. Quote, I learned immediately that I needed to get final cut someday because a director in television loses control the second that he walks off the soundstage and post-production begins and editorial takes over. Then the producers get very involved and kind of overcut you or recut you or second guess the cutting of the film. And I realized that my goal was at some point in my life to have control over the movies I made." End quote. According to biographer Joseph McBride, Spielberg's TV work upon his return to Universal was Marcus Welby first, followed by Make Me Laugh, then two episodes of The Psychiatrist, another of NBC's four-in-one rotating series like Night Gallery, a futuristic episode of The Name of the Game, an episode of Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, and the feature-length first episode of the regular Columbo series, which is, in my view, one of the best of the series and a compelling piece of mystery TV with just enough of his moving camera and visual flourishes to give us a taste of what was possible. Duel was right around the corner. What Spielberg brought to these episodes is the ambition to break formula even when sticking to formula. He didn't control the substance, but by controlling the style, the substance was elevated to the next level. In that way, he and Serling were alike. Serling, especially with The Twilight Zone, wanted to elevate routine television with the value of imaginative ideas and impeccable writing. Spielberg may have had little time, but his TV work does feel like he was out not to prove his talent, but to give his audience the kind of true entertainment value he believed they deserved. And that's really been his motto for the last 50 years. And again, that began here. As I mentioned, few people have gone on record to discuss this episode, but one person who did was actor Tony Russell, who is seen here as the director who's laughing his rear off at Jackie Slater. Apparently, Russell was friendly with executive producer Paul Freeman, who cast him in the part over Spielberg's objections, and this caused some tension between the actor and the director, with Russell thinking he was picked on by the young director, who filmed more takes than he thought was necessary. Let's remember that Spielberg had gone over schedule with eyes by a couple days, and this caused a lot of tension with the Universal Bean Counters. He was aiming to be true to his word that he'd stay on schedule this time around, and by all accounts, he did on all of his TV work upon his return to the studio. We'll let Duel slide because it was a TV movie. Anyway, if he spent extra time on Russell, it clearly helped him because he's actually pretty good in this episode. I, when I watch this scene in particular, with Cambridge being laughed at for all the wrong reasons, I am completely taken into what this actor is doing with his reactions. It is not lost on me today in 2021 that we have come a long way from the racism that Cambridge must have felt as a young man and certainly did in his early days on stage. But knowing that Cambridge had very strong and very vocal political views about race in America and that he had just portrayed a black man in whiteface in Melvin Van Peebles' socially charged Watermelon Man the year before, I see that there is great value to the idea of Godfrey Cambridge being laughed at for the ironic wrong reasons. The disgust and disappointment in his face is that of someone who has seen it all before numerous times. It's a moment in the episode that I think wins Cambridge some serious points when he is often losing them. Godfrey Cambridge and Jackie Vernon, despite their lack of on-screen chemistry, apparently had it off. Vernon suggested they pair up for a TV spoof in the vein of I Spy, and Cambridge, who had a lot of clout at NBC, said he liked the idea. Unfortunately, Cambridge took the idea to Don Adams, star of NBC's Get Smart, much to Vernon's dismay, and together they made a pilot called The Partners. Apparently the two men clashed in all ways, and NBC fired Cambridge before they even finished the pilot and quickly got out of the Godfrey Cambridge business. 
the 43-year-old Cambridge would die of a heart attack while rehearsing for the role of Idi Amin in 1976, not even a year after Rod Serling suffered his fatal heart attacks. Make Me Laugh was originally supposed to be the B segment of the episode, but most likely due to the reshoots and what they felt was a stronger response to clean kills, the segments were swapped. There must have been some serious ill feelings toward the entirety of this segment, which many have laid directly at the feet of Serling himself. Maybe it was his script. Was he ripping off old Twilight Zone ideas again? There's no denying similarities with the beloved episode What You Need, or the twist ending in Escape Clause, both from season one. But what is clear is that Serling was as dissatisfied as everyone else. It's really a piece of crap, Serling said. It almost single-handedly brought back vaudeville. But really, was it all that bad? Maybe for Serling it was. His script was not only rewritten by Jack Laird and others, but also Cambridge played fast and loose with his dialogue, two crimes unheard of on the set of The Twilight Zone. Quote, when I complain, they pat me on the head, condescend, and hope I go away, he said at the time. By the end of the three years, it was no wonder he called Night Gallery the worst experience of his career. If there was a miracle to be had, one that even Chatterjee could have been responsible for, it was that Night Gallery turned out as memorable as it did, that it produced a few highlights that it did, and that it helped launch Steven Spielberg. Spielberg never forgot his love and respect for Serling, and later would produce and direct not only Twilight Zone the movie, but also the TV series Amazing Stories, also for NBC, which he said at the time was in part due to his experiences working on Night Gallery. Make Me Laugh was one of the last times that Serling wrote an original teleplay that had a message attached to it. This is one episode where both segments contained stories personally important to Serling, and both failed in execution. I don't think they were as bad as some believe, and I think Make Me Laugh has moments of value, particularly the last sequence that shows off Spielberg's ability to emphasize emotion on the big and small scale. In fact, the choice to end the episode with this magnificent crane shot exactly where he does was something that Spielberg must have learned from the old masters like John Ford. Film what you want in a single take so that there's no way to cut around it. This shot accomplishes a great deal, but lands on the single most important image that Steven Spielberg wants us to remember. A tearful old woman in a crumpled hat, clutching flowers, who has been moved by the poor, unfortunate life and death of Jackie Slater. Her tears will linger well past all the laughter has faded. Greetings and welcome to the commentary on clean kills and other trophies, one of the crown jewels of the first season of Rod Serling's Night Gallery. I'm your host, Taylor White from Creature Features Publishing. My company released two deluxe coffee table books on the history of the series, both written by Scott Skelton and Jim Benson, who are considered the world's leading authorities on the show. The first book was titled Night Gallery, The Art of Darkness, released in 2019 and focused on the original paintings and sculptures created for the show by artists like Tom Wright, Yaroslav Geber, and Phil Vanderley. Uh, the other book was followed up in 2021 by the newly expanded second edition of Scott and Jim's Night Gallery, The After Hours Tour, which is now an exhaustive 800-page deep dive into the complete production history of the series, both then and how it's perceived now. Before we start, I should add that it's Scott and Jim's research and tenacity in uncovering every piece of fascinating minutiae on this series that is directly responsible for the majority of the material contained in this commentary. So as was mentioned earlier by Constantine in his opening, every episode of Night Gallery 
was introduced by Rod Serling as he unveiled a framed painting, setting the mood for the story ahead. The paintings created for all three seasons were achieved by the extraordinary talents of Mr. Tom Wright, who delivered well over 100 works of art that continue to mystify and dazzle viewers. Over 50 years later, Wright's painting for this episode was created using acrylics on masonite. It measured 36 by 24 inches and was actually painted before a frame of film was even shot, which meant Tom had to base his visuals entirely on either teleplays or treatments. According to Tom, it is fear that should be your first thought when you view this painting. And though more than half of Tom's original paintings from the show have been located, thanks to the efforts of Skelton, Benson, and myself, sadly the painting for Clean Kills and Other Trophies has yet to be unearthed and may very well be lost to the ages. The origins of this episode are very specific and stem from a fairly innocent invitation that Rod Serling and his wife Carol had received from one of the neighbors near their home in Pacific Palisades, who invited them to a themed safari dinner, quote-unquote. Thankfully, we have the recollections of Serling, in Serling's own words, as read from Skelton and Benson's After Hours tour book, says Serling, the host, he's a big game hunter. He goes to Africa about two months a year, and he shoots, and he kills, and he does so with gusto and with great pleasure. This is his big thing. Some men like girls, other guys like 40 caliber bullets. I'm not suggesting that all men who hunt are in some strange, sick way unwell, and I'm sure there's an ecological reason why some herds have to be thinned, but personally, I can't stand hunting. Serling goes on to say, we arrived at this gentleman's home, and the first thing we saw was a mounted boar's head on the wall, followed by a dead ocelot, a leopard, a monkey, a rhinoceros, and a giraffe, all glassy-eyed, resigned to death, staring at us from the walls. The ashtrays were made out of the feet of elephants. We walked on the skins of bears who had been killed by this staunch hunter of living species. And it occurred to me that, God, I don't like being here. I don't want this to be associated with death. And when we left, I said to my wife, I like the people. I truly do. They're gentle. They're kind. They're very gracious. But how can they live with all that death staring down at them? And I went home and wrote Clean Kills and Other Trophies. Serling's daughter, Anne, who has also written her own exceptional book called As I Knew Him, my dad, Rod Serling, also recalls, I remember the Clean Kills episode especially because my mom and dad were friends with my friend's parents. They were our neighbors. And this guy was a big safari hunter, which was so appalling. He had too many animal parts to put on the wall, so he filled up his garage with them. My dad and I had a lot of discussions about this story because we shared the same disgust about hunting. I do remember that one clearly. So Rod Serling, as he so often did with so many of his many personal causes and beliefs throughout his lifetime, channeled that distaste into his writing and used his creative arsenal to unleash a scathing indictment 
and ultimately ingenious comeuppance against the character known as Colonel Archie Dittman with his obsession where he measures manhood using guns and big game hunting as his yardstick. The choice to play Dittman fell on veteran Canadian actor Raymond Massey, who was no stranger to the genre having starred in films like Things to Come in 1936, Arsenic and Old Lace in 1944, and one of his best, A Matter of Life and Death, in 1946. He also earned an Academy Award nomination for his performance and uncanny resemblance to Abraham Lincoln in Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1938, proving that this man could play roles from both ends of the spectrum. At any age, Massey's deranged colonel is the counter-opposite of President Lincoln, here playing a relentless, despicable old SOB gleefully torturing his milquetoast son, played by Barry Brown, and relishing Serling's savage dialogue despite being 75 years of age and suffering from a painful arthritic hip. Massey's Dittman can easily hold his own against most of the harsher characters created during Serling's very long career, including cutthroat Walter Ramsey from Patterns, Henry Beavis's wife in the Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough at Last, and one of the great standouts, Joseph Schildkraut in Death's Head Revisited, also a Twilight Zone. According to Skelton and Benson's After Hour Tours, a profile of Raymond Massey appeared in the Cedar Rapids Gazette a few months before the episode actually went into production and reported that the actor's frailties had recently become severe enough to end his career on the stage after 32 long years, which forced him to rely on walking with a cane, as you see in the episode. Said Massey in an interview, I don't have the stamina anymore for the theater. I used to be 6'1 or 6'2, but I guess you shrink as you get older. It doesn't trouble me too much, although it has stopped me from, from horseback riding, which I loved. As recalled by director Walter Doniger, Massey was in physically bad shape, saying he was very hard to talk to, very irritable, and very difficult. Spoiler alert, Doniger mentions that doubtless wedging Massey's head into a trophy mount while teetering 15 feet off the ground did not make him any more charming. Uh, and even Rod Serling himself chimed in on Massey's performance as is noted in, in Skelton and Benson's book, saying Raymond Massey is a lovely gentleman who once was a fine actor, but who is very slow, very soft, and doesn't give you any of the balls that you desperately need in this kind of guy. I venture to say that if an actor like Rod Steiger did this, he would blow you apart. So regardless of everyone's soured mixed opinions on Massey, he would actually returned to the Night Gallery, as so many actors often did in 1970s television, by starring in another episode, this time for the third and last season in 1973, playing opposite Mickey Rooney in Rare Objects, which was also written by Serling. Uh, one final note of curiosity, one of the last performances of Massey's career would be in an ABC TV movie from 1973 titled the President's Plane is Missing, written by none other than Rod Serling's older brother, 
Robert J. Serling. Following this, Massey lived another 10 years away from the spotlight of, uh, of Hollywood and finally passed away on July 26, 1983, the same day as David Niven, his co-star in The Prisoner of Agenda and A Matter of Life and Death. One actor who everyone agrees was the episode standout was Herbert Jefferson playing Tom Maboya, Massey's trusted valet and an Oxford-educated Nigerian prince. Jefferson would later break out with roles in Rich Man, Poor Man and its sequel, and of course Universal's Battlestar Galactica along with its spin-off Galactica 1980s, playing the fan favorite Lieutenant Boomer, who was later promoted to Colonel. Uh, for the follow-up show. Said Jefferson, that was one of my favorites because it was a Serling story. And Serling himself approved of me for the role. I also had the good fortune of working with Raymond Massey, an actor I had grown up with in TV and film. And recalls director Doniger, Herbert Jefferson was a wonderful guy. I had a great experience with him. He played a prince from Africa, but when he came in, he started to play it too soft. So I told him, you're playing this like a, insert the forbidden N-word here, instead of a prince, which was a risky thing to say, but being an intelligent actor, his grasp of the difference was instant, and it changed his whole performance. He was playing a man who was, in a sense, a servant, but he played it like he was the owner of the place. So in essence, he was wonderful. Oddly, Jefferson's uh, character was non-existent in Serling's original short story that appeared in the first of the two Night Gallery collections published in paperback by Bantam Books in 1971. Serling's story was restricted to Dittman, his son, and their lawyer, and the original ending actually had the colonel dispatched not by vengeful gods, but by his own son, who finally snaps under the pressure of withstanding years of his father's abuse. The character of Tom and the supernatural elements in the play were obviously created by Serling to appease network uh, executives or standards and practices who went ballistic over the author's first version. Says Serling, this was written originally as a short story in which there was no phony black magic. The kid comes back from the hunt and he's outraged by the old man and he goes berserk. There's a scene in the study where the kid goes after him with an axe and decapitates him, takes his bloody head and jams it on a nail in the wall. It was a delightfully comic scene, says Serling with a wink, but hey, that's decapitation, you know, unheard of in television. On the subject of Dittman Jr., the one actor who unfortunately wasn't quite up to the standards of Massey and Jefferson was Barry Brown playing Dittman's put-upon son. Brown spent the 70s guest starring in shows like Marcus Welby, M.D., Barnaby Jones, Policewoman, The Name of the Game, Iron Squad, Gunsmoke, and others. He must have had an extremely persuasive agent, though Rod Serling, being the outspoken gentleman that he is, didn't mince words when he critiqued Brown's performance, saying, when Raymond Massey refers to him as a cream puff, a vegetable, a cauliflower, essentially, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at Jimmy Stewart dead at 16. He is a vegetable. When the kid aims the rifle at the father, you should think for all the world that he may kill him. But there's no doubt in anyone's mind who's seeing this segment that 
the boy won't pull the trigger. Uh, in a later interview, Brown himself actually admitted to the typecasting and the roles he was typically offered, saying, I usually do get typecast for sensitivity and for my soft, gentle looks. I, I rarely get cast as a villain. In a tragic footnote, uh, Brown would later find himself entangled in drugs and alcohol, and as noted in Skelton and Benson's book, Childhood Family Dysfunction, and ultimately took his own life on June 27, 1978, at the age of 27. Ironically, in keeping with the overall theme of this episode, his method of suicide turned out to be a handgun. Clean Kills was directed by Walter Doniger, who was a veteran TV director, mostly known for directing 64 episodes of Baton Place from 1964 to 1968. He helmed an endless number of classic TV shows with like McLeod, Lucas Tanner, Kung Fu, and he even directed two episodes of Night Gallery's rival, William Castle's Ghost Story in 1972. Uh, he had a style which had been documented as abrasive, which judging from the direction he gave Herb Jefferson's character in Clean Kills, sounds like an understatement. Uh, Doniger was best known for his elegant camera moves and striking compositions, which gave the segment an appealing visual scheme that helps far more than hinders this uh, this drama. This work is, or his work is certainly superior to others, other less accomplished directors who worked in this series. And Doniger, who was a writer as well as a director, knew the value of Serling's work. Doniger says, in my first year directing, I was nominated twice for the Emmy, and I didn't even know what I was doing. But one thing I knew how to do was pick a good script, and I refused to do others. I knew a good script would carry me until I learned how to direct. Directors who say, I took this terrible script and made a good film out of it are absolutely full of it because no one makes a good picture out of a bad script. And his instincts proved uh, to be a valuable asset to this uh, episode. Uh, in Jim and Scott's book, the author refers to Doniger's camera moves as complex and sinuous, tracking stealthily and unobtrusively around his characters. Uh, noted assistant director Les Berkey says, normally when you do a four-page scene, you do your rehearsal, then you do a partial or full master shot, then you go in and get all your coverage shots. But with Walter, he would go in and shoot three four, five-page masters, and the reverses were built into the master in such a way that all you had to do was go around on one person, usually pick up their close-ups for the entire scene, and walk away from it. He was brilliant. Walter Doniger made my made many dolly operator want to commit suicide. Uh, this was very hard on the, the crews, admitted Doniger, but you have to learn how to take risks in this business or you become a hack. Uh, when you do do those shots, you have to have an excellent camera operator, an excellent crab dolly man, an excellent focus puller, and all three of them have to work together at the right instant, or it doesn't work. I thought that I could flow the camera so that audience wouldn't be distracted by a lot of cutting. As such, Doniger may have made it so complicated that he only directed this one episode of Night Gallery, but it clearly is a standout on a technical level. Filming the gruesome finale 
with Massey's head mounted high on the wall made a lasting impression on Herb Jefferson. Uh, the effect was created by uh, with Massey laying down on a mattress, then raising the bed up on a forklift to a hole in the wall. Uh, Massey's head was moved forward through the hole and a wooden plaque fitted around his neck. Tough go for a, a 75-year-old. Says Herb Jefferson, I'll never forget seeing his disembodied head squirming on the wall saying, this feels like a size 14. And the effects man replying, no, Mr. Massey, it's a size 16. I measured it. Uh, Doniger and director of photography, Robert C. Glauner, maximized Serling's shocking payoff by planning the reveal in one long take. Tom enters the study, pours himself a brandy, raises it in a toast to something just out of camera range, and the camera pulls back to include Dittman's mounted head on the wall, then pulls in for a close-up on the Grizzly Trophy fade-out, as Scott and Jim say, masterful. In March and April of 1975, shortly before Serling's untimely death on June 28th of that same year, Serling taught a dramatic writing class to students at Sherman Oaks Experimental College in Southern California. Serling was very much a staunch believer in education and sharing his knowledge with the younger generations and also, also taught at Ithaca College in uh, New York. During one particular session in Sherman Oaks, uh, he brought two episodes of his then current work to show to his students. Uh, the first was The Little Black Bag, and the other, of course, was Clean Kills and Other Trophies. Unfortunately, the student in charge of, of working the uh, projector uh, threaded up the reel incorrectly and started showing the class Make Me Laugh, uh, which sent their teacher, Mr. Serling, into an apoplectic fit, as that was the last episode he wanted to show his class as an example of his writing skills. So always quick with, uh, with a joke and humor, Serling quipped to his students that that episode is so bad, it almost single-handedly brought back vaudeville. The crisis was quickly averted and Clean Kills was then shown in its entirety. As noted in Skelton and Benson's book, Serling made the following remark, uh, Clean Kills and other trophies happens to represent an area of concern that I have, which is so deep-rooted in me that I obviously go way out in the meadow with it. It's a static piece that Serling says should have been violently moving, though according to Skelton and Benson, his comments were intended as half an apology and half of a defense. But keep in mind that Serling could have picked any first season episode to show his students at, at uh, Sherman Oaks Experimental College, so that at the very least has to account for something. As is often the case, those closest to the production tend to be the most critical, but in this commentator's opinion, Clean Kills and Other Trophies is one of the strongest episodes from the series first or any of the three uh, seasons. It's a lean, mean, highly effective episode that literally bruises the viewer with Serling's raw and angry prose. It also gets extra point from this critic who was curled up in front of his TV set at the ripe young age of 10 when this episode had its first airing on January 6th, 1971. Needless to say, 
The gruesome finale was intensely discussed during recess at Claiborne Elementary School in San Marino, California, and even today still stands as one of the most startling and sickeningly uh, rewarding retributions to an episode this side of the Caterpillar, which is uh, probably Night Gallery's most notorious episode uh, from season two, and which to this day still wins the prize for the uh, the most uh, the most disturbing outcome. Uh, one final observation before we sign off: uh, the idea of a character losing his head in a Rod Serling-produced television series dates back. 10 years earlier to November 3rd, 1961, when six-year-old Anthony Fremont threw a tantrum and transported the favorite head of poor inebriated Dan Hollis onto a jack-in-the-box over a minor disagreement on whether or not to play a Barry Combo record. So on that note, cheers and thank you for joining us on this brief trip through the gallery. For more information on both the new expanded edition of the After Hours Tour and The Art of Darkness, they are available exclusively through www.nightgallery.net and www.creaturefeatures.com. Pleasant dreams. Now there is a trophy. The king of the jungle.